Getting started. So as we move into the section on woman's role in the church, um, we're going to end up in, in 1 Timothy 5 and be bouncing around the pastoral epistles a little bit. But one, some of the questions you commonly hear when this topic comes up are, can women serve in the church or should women participate in ministry? And I think those questions miss the mark um, because everyone, man and woman, are part of the body of God um, and the church and they have a role to play. And so the question we need to ask is not how, or it's not can or should, it's, it's how must women serve in the church. And so we could talk about a wide variety of things. They should pray, share the gospel, teach other women and kids, hold their brothers and sisters accountable, participate in mercy ministries, volunteer their time and talents, exercise their spiritual gifts, show hospitality, um, train up other women and kids. Uh, we, we could go on and on. But for the sake of our time tonight, we're going to focus on three. Uh, serving or good works, hospitality, and, and also teaching. And I hope you can see through, through all of these a through line of just as, as women have, have a familial role of raising up kids and creating an atmosphere of warmth in the home, they also do the exact same type of work in the church. And so um, the first one, serving or good works, this is repeatedly described throughout Scripture is the inward beauty of a woman that is precious in God's sight. And I think we see a good example of this in 1 Timothy 5. So we're going to be starting in verse 9, but in this section, Paul is sort of expounding what a true widow is. What is a widow who has been faithful and after, if their family is not able to care for them, how, how do we know whether a widow is qualified for the church to care them. And so as he lists these qualifications, we can draw these principles out to what every female church member should desire to be. If this is what a faithful widow looks like in the church, every female church member should desire to be like that as well. So starting in verse 9, we read, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And so we see here that the faithful female church member is one who serves. She meets the felt needs of the saints, whether collectively as a group or individually. Um, often at the expense of herself, she, she spends her time and talents and energy to, to meet needs. And now if your first response is, well, could you possibly be more vague or general than uh, good works or service? I think the opposite of good works and serving um, can help. And that, as Paul describes here, is the concept of, of a widow being an idler or a busybody. In essence, it's a woman who is in the church but is lazy and is not participating in the united mission of the body. Uh, especially um, for all of us, but as women, there are no bench warmers in the church. We're all in the field. We're all fighting for the same goal. And if you are a woman, that you have the blessed opportunity of looking for areas to serve in the united mission of the church to achieve that goal, to raise up disciples, to reach the lost, and to glorify God with what we do. And, and this is of a, immense importance to God because as we'll see in all of these, all of the, the, the ways of service uh, reflect Christ. That Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. So when women serve well, we are reflecting Christ to a watching world. Christ came and, and literally washed the disciples' feet and commanded us to do likewise, just, just like the widow here. And so when we serve our brothers and sisters, we are, in a sense, being Christ to them. And it's of immense importance. And so as you think about this idea of serving, just, just remember, there's, there's no bench warmers. 
Everyone is on the field. Um, on the, the topic of serving, though, we, we connect to one of the offices Z mentioned, which is the office of deacon. Uh, that word literally means servant, and so it is an authoritative position in the church um, for serving. And we come to a boundary. And so um, in this area of boundaries, culture has influenced us a lot more than we think. They've redefined equality between men and women from equality of worth, which we heartily affirm, to equality of outcomes. Basically saying a man has to be able to do everything a woman does, and a woman has to be able to do everything a man does. And any such boundary, distinction, difference between the two is, is evil and is wrong. But as Christians, we understand that the boundaries and distinctions are, are good. We don't send children off to fight wars. Uh, a man cannot give birth. There is a boundary there. And, and most importantly, uh, the church is not to act like Christ. Christ is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is the one who sacrificed himself for us. And so boundaries are inherently good. And so as we come to that uh, idea with, with the office of deacon, uh, we need to ask ourselves the question, are there two offices, male qualified deacons and female qualified deaconesses, or is there one office, male qualified deacons? Uh, before maybe answering that question, I want to give a really high-level overview of what this office is for. So as we talked about, an elder is the, a minister of the word. He teaches. A deacon is, in a sense, a minister of the hands. He, he meets the felt needs of the saints. He's actively aware of um, needs in the body, and they, they stand in the gap. And a deacon is an authoritative position to accomplish that purpose. While not explicit, it doesn't say deacon in the text, I think Acts 6 is a good example of this, in which uh, the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows were sort of at odds. They felt like they were being unequally treated. And so the apostles commanded the congregation to select seven men to meet those needs, to care for the widows. And that's, that's a good on-the-ground example of what a deacon is. And so we come back to that question. Are there two offices or are there one? And unlike male-only eldership, there, there are Christians that do land on both sides of this aisle. But I would propose to you that, um, both specifically in the broad storyline of Scripture, that there's one office for qualified male deacons. Um, as we think about that, there's probably two primary um, views that oppose that, or two primary texts that oppose that. The first is Romans 16.1. We don't have to turn there, but uh, in that text, Rome, uh, Paul describes Phoebe to the church of Rome as a servant. He says, welcome her well because she is a servant. Now, depending on your translation, it might say servant or it might say deacon because in the original language, they're, they're the exact same word. And that word gets translated a wide variety of ways in the New Testament. Um, it's used about 30 times. It can mean uh, minister, teacher, a servant of the king, someone who serves tables, or in this instance, maybe deacon. Um, however, I, I would say that um, to be consistent with an unclear passage like this, you need to be consistent all across the spectrum, which would mean if Phoebe is a deacon, then Apollos, Timothy, Paul, Tychicus, Epaphras, and every single king or government official needs to be an official church deacon as well, because the exact same word is used. And so we would say that that's not an appropriate translation in those instances. And I'd say in context, when Paul is instructing the church of Rome to welcome Phoebe well, him commending her as a servant, as someone worthy of honor, not necessarily a church deacon, is probably the more consistent view. The second text, which we'll turn to, if you just flip the page to 1 Timothy 3, um, is, is the passage uh, we referenced already talking about deacons. And it'll be uh, 1 Timothy 3, 
8 through 13. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to, to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so the, the crux of the matter comes down to verse 11. Um, that, that start of that verse could say their wives, um, which would mean, okay, the, the wives of male deacons have certain qualifications, or it could be the woman also, or the woman likewise, which would mean Paul is creating a distinct other office for woman deaconesses. And I, I think applying the scriptural hermeneutical principle of interpreting the unclear, because this is an unclear verse, with the clear can be helpful here. And I think the clear helps us understand that he's, he's not necessarily creating a separate office, but he's, he's just describing the wives of male qualified deacons. I say that for, for four reasons. Um, first, it would be a little bit odd for Paul, who, who's sort of a master orator and argumenter, to be talking about male deacons in verses 8, 9, 10, take a hard pivot in verse 11, completely changing topics without letting the reader know, and then go back to male deacons in verses 12 and 13. I just think the flow of the argument goes better if it's just one single office. Second, um, verse 12, as, as along with elders, says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Uh, obviously, only men can fulfill that requirement. And uh, the third reason, I think this is really interesting, is it seems rather odd if there's two offices that are in essence, to fulfill the same function as servants of the hands in the church, for there to be different qualifications for men and women and actually lesser qualifications, a lower bar for women in the same type of office. We have to ask ourselves the question, do, do women um, not need to be tested first? Or can, can women be greedy for gain? But, but both of those disqualify a man. I think the more consistent idea is that there's one office, one single set of qualifications. And the last, um, I mentioned this already with Acts 6, um, I think it's a good example that probably does point to deacons and explicitly the apostles there command the congregation to select from among them seven men to fulfill that office. So for the sake of time, um, that, that brief introduction and overview will have to suffice, but happy to answer questions on that afterwards. Um, getting back to our list. So we've talked about service or good works. I also want to talk about hospitality. Um, the widow that is commended in 1 Timothy 5 exhibits that hospitality, but we see this elsewhere in scripture where Lydia, after her conversion in Acts, um, urges the apostles, uh, Paul and his followers, to, to stay with her, almost pressing them, forcing them to accept her generous hospitality. We see Sarah and Abraham rushing with almost unnecessary urgency to, to feed and to um, give drink to the angels in Genesis. Um, it's an immense importance to God. Uh, Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. That hospitality, welcome each other, is, is a form of worship. If a church is hospitable, it shows that they understand Christ's hospitality to us. That when we had nothing to offer him, that when we provided him no value, he welcomed him, us in as we were and, and made us new creatures. That, that when we do this well, we are reflecting our Savior. And as we um, talked about earlier, I think women have a distinct ability to 
create that level of warmth in the church, just like the family. But I want us to, to move beyond the idea of hospitality only going towards home and, and expanding that to all areas of life in the church. Hospitality is seeing a new face on Sunday morning and making sure that they are talked to, they are pursued. You ask them questions. You make sure that they are, they are desired there. Hospitality is seeing a brother or sister have a rough week and a really busy week and making them dinner, cleaning their house, meeting their needs. Hospitality is also a harsh rejection of partiality or favoritism in the church. There are no cliques in the church, that we don't treat the people we like really well, ask them questions, smile when we see them, love to talk to them, and the people we don't get along with very well, we sort of ignore and really don't care about. We are to welcome all of Christ's people to the glory of God. And so, like I said, there's a distinct level of, of raising up the church, those around us, that, that I think women are uniquely equipped to do because it's very similar to the family. Um, and I, I think a good way of viewing this is hospitality is, is a form of adoption, that we are adopting people when we welcome them well. So when we, we have an older spiritual father in the, in the faith, we treat them like we would our actual father, our own flesh and blood. We honor him, we listen to him, we respect him. When there, there's a younger sister, we treat them like we would our, our actual younger sister. We, we listen to them, we're protective of them, we, we desire their welfare. That, that hospitality is adoption in sense. We are creating spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual sons and daughters in the church. Um, and this is, is critically important for the church's growth. We, we know with agriculture that, that plants grow best when they have the right conditions. When there's good soil, good sunlight, they're, they're watered. In the same way that the church grows best with the right conditions, conditions of hospitality. People know they're welcome, they're cared for, that they can come even when it's been a rough week or there's been a lot of sin that they've been working through, that they're still desired. You can have a plant that is a healthy, strong plant, but when you take away those conditions, it dies. So you can have really healthy preaching, really healthy teaching in the church, but if there's no hospitality, the church dies. On the other hand, when there is good hospitality, there, there's cultivating growth in the church for it to receive the nutrients from the preaching and teaching of the word, from the sacraments to grow. And that's why it's important. Um, the third and final thing I wanna talk about is, is teaching. And so we, we've talked about how the office of elder is, is for qualified men, but we still desperately need women teachers in the church to teach other women, to, to raise up kids well. And I, I want to go back to, to Titus 2. I know we've been there already, but I think this, this really outlines things well. So in Titus 2, um, Paul is, is telling Titus how to adorn the doctrine of God, how to beautify, clothe healthy doctrine so that, that it shines bright in a dark night. And, and this is our calling as, as men and women, um, especially women in regards to, to teaching here. So starting in verse one, we read, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young woman to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so we see a, a twofold command here. First, older women are to train the younger um, by teaching. 
They, they are to instruct them in, in sound doctrine and what is good and right and, and what is orthodox theology. But we also see this idea of, of training or exhorting or discipling, that um, there should be a lived out Christianity that older women train the younger woman in, that they should have models of holiness in their life to understand what it looks like to be a woman of God. And, and you might push back and say, well, we don't have older women. And, and I, I'd agree with you, but, but age is, is relative. We can't wait until we have 40, 50, 60-year-old women to fulfill Paul's command here. We have older women than others in the church. We have women who have been Christians longer than others in the church. And so if that is you and you are able to teach, look for ways to exercise that gift. Look for ways to prepare yourself to exercise that gift. Read good books. Listen to good podcasts. Study theology. Um, Get involved in, in leading a Bible study, if you can, with other women or discipling them on a one-on-one -on -one level or in, in groups. Um, it, it's so important. And on a more daily level, also, just simply share what you're reading in the Word with other women. Teach them through that. It, it doesn't need to be complicated. Um, if, if that's maybe not you and you're, you're younger in your faith as, as a woman of God, uh, this season can be a season of preparation. You might not ever exercise this idea of teaching in an official capacity in the church, but two things. First, we're all commanded to make disciples. So in a sense, all of us teach. And second, as we've talked about a ton tonight, your role is to raise up godly offspring. Every woman will be teachers if God gives you children. And so treat this time as, as a great time of preparation. Um, I think all of us, men or women, are, are really by omission or commission uh, influenced in a lot of ways by those over us in our life. That we are who we are today by what we have been taught, what we've heard, and what we've seen modeled, what, what we've seen with our eyes from other people around us. And that can be really positive or really negative if it's not there. But focusing on the positive, um, what would it look like for you as a woman to be that model of holiness for a younger woman? What would it look like for you to be a model, a teacher of, of a college sophomore? And what it looks like to be um, a Christian in a secular campus? What would it look like to be a model of a, a submissive, loving wife who manages her household well? Like, like cast a vision of what that would be. It's not just verbal teaching. So much of what we learn is just by watching. So what will other women do when they watch their life, your life? And that requires an intentionality, and that is, in a sense, teaching. Um, I know we still have one more session on singleness, but this sort of uh, concludes uh, the core of what we've been talking about tonight with a biblical doctrine of men and women, biblical gender roles. And there's sort of two routes we could go from here as we, I hope all understand that men and women are, are different at this point, but there's still two routes. And I'm stealing this analogy from Reverend Kevin DeYoung down in, in Charlotte. But one route, the first route is to view men and women as two basketballs, but one's an indoor basketball and one's an outdoor basketball in that they're, they're meant for different things, one outdoor, one indoor, but Honestly, they're, they're pretty much the same thing. The problem with this view is the, the, the balls are interchangeable. At the end of the day, you can use the indoor one outdoor and vice versa. And um, maybe not today, 
maybe not tomorrow, but at the end of the day, that actually leads to a dissolving of gender distinctions really at all, egalitarianism. That you can plug and play men and women in whatever role they want, and it really doesn't matter. And unfortunately, I think I'd go far to say that that destroys the idea of gender overall, as we've seen in our culture, that gender is just a spectrum, that we're all just one humanity. And so I think the proper understanding for what we've talked about tonight so far is that men and women are like a basketball and a football. Uh, theoretically, you could throw a basketball 50 yards. Theoretically, you can shoot a free throw with a football, but it's not gonna turn out very well. That, that the balls were made by the manufacturer to fulfill a certain purpose. That they were shaped different, they have different textures, different functions, different missions. And I think that's how we should view men and women um, overall, in that our creator, our manufacturer, has made us different. And so instead of an arbitrary distinction, like the first example, now we can embrace this idea of being men and being women um, happily, joyfully, not being confused about what our role is, but properly understanding that this is God's calling on our life, that we can be men who act like men for the glory of God, and we can be women who act like women for the glory of God. So I'll pray for us. Father, uh, thank you that you do not make mistakes. That before time began, uh, you knew each and every one of your creatures. Um, you were not surprised by how we turned out uh, in the womb or out of the womb, but that you know us like a, uh, a creator knows his creation, God. And that is such a good thing. I ask that you would give us contentment, but not just contentment, excitement in how you've wired us, men and women, and that we would be happy to, to push forward into the task that you have given us in the church, in the family, and in life overall. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Uh, thank you for just, just so clearly outlining your calling for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.